Okay, here we go. Another episode of Oklahoma Appeals. Glad to be back. Thanks, Janet, for manning the ship by yourself last week as I was on convalescent leave. <laughs> you don't get you don't get paid leave for that, FYI. That's right. So I know the benefits around here are not not the best, <laughs> but you know we do it for the love of the game. That's right. Okay, well, in this episode, we have a few bits of news. I have some updates from the recently conducted Oklahoma Bar Association annual meeting. Jana has a very exciting report from appellate nerd land. She went to some appellate conference in Texas, so she's going to tell us about that. And then we're going to cover, looks like about, what, eight recently published opinions from the Court of Civil Appeals. So. Okay, we got a lot in store for us today, so let's just jump right in. The Oklahoma Bar Association held this annual meeting a couple of weeks ago in Oklahoma City. I attended, and I know Jana was there as well as she presented to a plenary session on updates from the appellate courts. I had the opportunity to take that presentation in, and she did a great job, of course, and she plugged the pod a little bit. So maybe we have some new listeners that learned about it from your recent talk. Hopefully so. Hopefully so. Well, a couple other things that went on at the annual meeting that I wanted to share with our listeners. I don't know if they've done this in the past or not, but this is the first time I discovered it, at least a video of it online, which was a state of the OBA presentation from the OBA president, Mike Morty, as well as a state of the judiciary presentation from Chief Justice Richard Darby. And these are in video format and they're archived online. So if you're interested in seeing the full presentations, and neither one of them were very lengthy, but they were informative and I appreciated both. You can find them online, but I'll give you what I thought were the highlights. Uh, First from Mike Morty's state of the OBA. Again, he is the outgoing president. He's an attorney in private practice in Ardmore and a good guy. He stated that the association is in good shape financially, that as of around the current time, there are just shy of 18,500 active members of the association. Now, as far as the number of lawyers in private practice, that's somewhere probably 60-70% of that number. I think that number includes out-of-state lawyers, uh, those admitted pro hoc vice, etc., retired members, you know, in-house counsel, all those folks. So, but overall, that's the number of active members. And I also found it interesting that Mike mentioned that there has been no dues increase since 2005, which is really shocking. <laughs> and our dues, I think, relative to other bar associations around the state are pretty low. So it is pretty amazing what the bar association accomplishes on a pretty low dues number that, again, hasn't been increased in now. 16 years, which is really incredible. The other most uh, interesting thing that he shared was that the executive director, John Morse Williams, is going to retire this year uh, or next year, I guess, 2022. So John has been the executive director of the association for quite some time. So that will be a big change. Mm -hmm. uh, And that was the first I'd heard of it. So interesting news that at least as far as I know, was breaking news from Mike Morty's State of the OBA address. He also talked about a few member benefits that he wanted to highlight. Of course, Fast Case, the online research Westlaw LexisNexis alternative that is 
paid for by the Bar Association on behalf of all the members. If you're a member of the Bar, you have free access to FastCase. And while we don't use it here at Bass Law, I understand that it is a pretty good pretty good product. And also he mentioned Hein Online, which is a, an archive of journals. And I know the OBA's bar journals, I think, are archived there. And the OBA pays for that. And it's free to the members as a part of the dues that you pay. He also brought up the Lawyers Helping Lawyers Initiative to provide free counseling to bar members. The bar contracts with a third-party mental health services provider that will provide six hours of free counseling in about any topic, it sounds like, for a bar member. So if you would uh, benefit from that, then, then why not? You've got access to that for free as a part of your bar association membership. So that was my notes from Mr. Morty's presentation. So moving on now to Chief Justice Darby's State of the Judiciary presentation. He first noted that he had gotten a few questions recently about why he wasn't voting in some recent cases. They had recently issued some pretty high profile cases, which we'll get into the next time we do a Supreme Court update, but he did not vote in those. And he wanted everyone to know that it was not because he was trying to avoid the controversial cases, but he had actually been in the hospital. And so that was uh, that's what he shared with everybody. And I also thought it was interesting and and touching that he shared his history of being paralyzed since he was 21. I know I've seen Chief Justice Darby, so I was aware that he used a wheelchair, but I didn't know anything about the history of his medical condition. But he, in fact, was involved in a car accident at age 21 that left him paralyzed. And he shared that with, with everyone during his update. And I thought that was a nice personal, you know, part of him that that he shared and was was interesting. I think helps to kind of personalize the the judges and justices of our appellate courts in particular. He became a special judge at the age of 27. And so he's been oh. on the trial. He was on the trial bench for 31 years before before taking his position on the Oklahoma Supreme Court. Chief Justice Darby highlighted a few efforts that are underway as far as the Supreme Court's function as the chief administrator or oversight body of the state court system. He said that electronic filing was still something that they had on their radar and was still a topic and something that is being worked on, which was interesting to hear because we really haven't heard much about that for quite some time. But I was glad to hear that the Chief Justice still has that as an item of interest to be uh, advanced at some point when possible. And he also discussed the language access initiative that the court has been working on this year to provide interpreters across the state for a number of languages. Uh, he expressed his surprise at how many different languages are needed <laughs> in our court system and that the court has recently hired a language access resource coordinator, so someone who will be the point person to coordinate and manage the interpreter resources throughout the state. That was an access to justice-related initiative that he highlighted during his presentation. And finally, he mentioned that we have a number of vacant district judge positions throughout the state, 
And it was his understanding that we should not expect that those positions are going to be filled until the next election cycle rolls around. So I'm not sure. Did he say why? No, I don't believe that he did. I don't recall that. It sounds like that. I don't know if this is a, a budgetary thing or what the reason is, but it sounds like for the open positions, they would rather there be an election. Someone would rather that there be an election to fill those as opposed to the JNC process, I guess. I, I thought it was a curious comment, but that's what he said. So anybody knows more about that or has some better fidelity on what exactly that means? <laughs> hit us up. <laughs> hit us up and we'll, we'll share the word. Is the next election cycle just start in 2022? So it's not that far, but. Yeah, I, I guess, you know. I, I don't know. I don't know if that meant that you know, all the judge, the open district judge positions, yeah, that they were going to wait until there were elections taking place so that they could fill them by election as opposed to the normal appointment process. I know there is definitely, you know, for counties that don't otherwise have countywide elections to hold, it is a budget issue to call an election just to fill, you know, one position. I'm sure they would prefer to put the district judge position on the ballot with with other things that are also going to be going out for a countywide vote just because of the expense of you know mm-hmm. staffing polling places, printing ballots, et cetera. But I don't know. That's that's what he said and that's all I know about it. But <laughs> there you have it. Okay. So now moving on to I know what everyone's tuning in to hear all about. <laughs> the equivalent that the appellate lawyer equivalent of the Star Trek convention that you attended. That's right. That's right. Gabe's been calling it appellate con. So this is the Appellate Judges Education Institute Summit, which is a product of the ABA's appellate judges section. And it's not just judges that can sign up for this particular conference. It is staff attorneys for courts throughout the country, law clerks, and appellate practitioners who are in private practice. And so you can join the ABA section on the appellate judges conference in order to be a part of of this conference So yeah, I uh, went down there to Austin back actually the same time as the Oklahoma Bar Conference. And so it was a three, see, three full days conference and Thursday to Sunday. And we had some some pretty good speakers, some higher profile speakers. We had a handful of private practitioners started off the conference on Friday with a panel on a Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court preview. And so among the the practitioners who were on the panel, we're talking, you know, folks who who have argued 30 plus oral arguments at the U.S. Supreme Court. So a lot of really experienced folks, they're telling us about what to watch for from the U.S. Supreme Court. Also, on Friday, there was a panel, and you may have seen some commentary on the news about this, but there was a panel specifically on the U.S. Supreme Court's what people are calling shadow docket. And so I think Justice 
I, made, I think it was Justice Breyer made some comments to a publication or in an interview about the Supreme Court's shadow docket. And so that was pretty interesting. Again, some some folks who practice at the U.S. Supreme Court, a con law professor from the University of Texas who specifically follows the Supreme Court and this particular docket. And so that was kind of interesting. It's cases that the Supreme Court is issuing decisions on, but there maybe hasn't been a full briefing cycle yet, or it's expedited in some way. And it's gotten some some pretty high-profile decisions have come from this docket in the recent months. And so it's just kind of interesting to hear their take on the why behind that. So, so is the term shadow docket meant to be like a pejorative term, like it's implying not, it, that it's lack of transparency? No. Or? Well, it wasn't originally meant to be that. The term has been around, I think, for a long time now, for 15 or 20 years. But it's just now sort of gotten some... I don't know if the right word is flack because of some of the decisions that have come from this docket. I don't think that that's that it's meant to be anything other than just that's what it's been called. So, but now that some of these higher profile decisions have come from it, there's some questions about what process is in place internally to put cases on this particular fast track and and that kind of thing. So, okay. Yeah. Kind of interesting. Dean Erwin Chimerinsky was also there. He writes a textbook on constitutional law and is a frequent arguer at the U.S. Supreme Court. And he gave a update from the last Supreme Court term, a civil update and a criminal update. And in true professor style, I mean, this guy got up there and went through all of the civil cases from the U.S. Supreme Court, you know, that he had planned to talk about in exactly one hour with no notes and never <laughs> missed a beat. So he was one to take a lesson from. So <laughs> the next panel that I went to that I thought was really interesting, it was a panel on how to thrive online using social media in today's legal world. And so one of the panelists is Justice McCormick, who is the Chief Justice of the Michigan Supreme Court, and she is heavily involved in Twitter and Instagram, and she is an advocate for access to justice through using technology. So she was on the panel And then Rafi Melkonian, who is sort of the guy who created Appellate Twitter, was on the panel as well. And then Judge Roy Ferguson, who was the judge who presided over the Zoom hearing where the cat showed up. So (laughs) if you haven't seen that clip, that's one you need to take a look at. But it was really interesting, especially Judge Ferguson's discussion of, <laughs> of the Zoom cat hearing. And he said that he he gets on to, to preside over this Zoom hearing and he sees this lawyer who has, you know, this filter of a cat. <laughs> and he tries to help him, you know, <laughs> remove the cat filter, of course, and they they can't figure it out. And so They finally get it figured out. And after the hearing is over, Judge Ferguson said that he had, you know, a portion of the of the Zoom hearing that he thought would be good to post on Twitter. 
just as an example of how, you know, (laughs) how difficult this, you know, it was right in the midst of COVID and how difficult this technology thing can be when you're trying to get hearings done. So he said he, he, he sat on the tweet for about 10 minutes before he posted it because he didn't want it to be taken the wrong way by anyone or offend anyone, but he went ahead and posted it. And he said that within 30 seconds of posting it, it had been retweeted so many times already that he began receiving emails and notifications on his phone. His email system in his office went down. His phone yeah. system in his office went down. His phone, he said he had in his pocket, what he said was literally burning his leg because he had received over 100,000 Twitter notifications within the first minute of posting this video. And so he said he made the split decision at that point to get back on and and tweet something to the effect of look at how hard the judiciary and private practice lawyers are working in this COVID time to make sure we still have hearings and access to justice is not denied because he felt like if he didn't frame that narrative that this it could go a lot of different ways. And he said He did what he could and it helped, but he felt like he was, you know, riding a wave that he had no control over. And so it was really interesting to to hear his his discussion on on when something goes viral. (laughs) (laughs) So we had a couple other panels that were specifically geared toward writing. And there is a judge, an appellate judge, who is also an author, and he was on his name's Judge David Ellis, and he is a best-selling author, but also sits, I think it's the Indiana, one of the Indiana appellate courts, but also our own Judge David Lewis from the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals was on a panel at this conference, and the panel was on preventing wrongful convictions by ensuring the reliability of forensic evidence. And this was another star-studded lineup with Barry Sheck, the founder of the Innocence Project out of New York, sort of the guy who started the Innocence project and innocence clinic wave throughout the United States. So he was on that panel and that was also a really interesting session. So the last panel that I went to was also really interesting. It was called Courage, the Seminal Virtue in Advocacy and Judging. And this panel included a justice on the Michigan Supreme Court, Justice Elizabeth Clement, And in Michigan, they have partisan election of their Supreme Court justices. And so in 2018, I believe it was, she was tapped. She was already on the court and was going to run for re-election on the Republican ticket. And before the nomination convention for her party, the Michigan Supreme Court issued an opinion. I think it was on redistricting is what she said. I could be wrong about that. But nevertheless, it was a high profile case. And she voted in a way that the Republican Party did not like. And they basically told her and 
I mean, in all practical effects said, you're not going to be on our ticket. If you want to run for your seat again, you'll have to do all of the fundraising yourself. She said that it was very ugly when they showed up, when she and her family showed up to the Republican nominating convention, people were booing her and making comments to her family and children. Um, And so she ended up doing all of the fundraising herself and proceeding forward with her re-election bid and ended up winning her seat back even after all of that. And so it was a fascinating story to hear. The other judge that was on this panel, Justice Marsha Turnus, was a justice of the Iowa Supreme Court back in 2010. And in 2009, the Iowa Supreme Court issued an opinion on same-sex marriage saying that, you know, any ban on it was unconstitutional. And so in 2010, there was a campaign to unseat the justices that were on the retention ballot in Iowa. And I believe it was her and maybe one or two others who were on that ballot that year. And for the first time in Iowa state history, they were not retained. And so she was one of the justices that did not retain her seat in that 2010 election. So the other gentleman that was on the panel, who is now on the Indiana Supreme Court, Judge David, Justice David, he has a really interesting career. He was the selected back in 2007 because of his military career to go down to Guantanamo Bay to be the chief defense counsel for the terrorists who were staying there, placed there from the 9-11 incident. And so he had a really interesting story as well about how you know, that was a really difficult decision for him. His dad had been in the military for a long time and he had some you know, personal issues with his relationship with his father because of the decision that he made to go down and represent these particular detainees. Yes. And so that panel was really interesting to hear those stories and and some, you know, what, what kind of decisions you have to make, not just as a judge, but also as a lawyer and how, you know, what, what kind of Courage, I guess, is the, is the word they use that you have to have sometimes to do what you think is right under the circumstances. So, yeah, Appellate Con was a total nerd fest and I loved it. So, okay. well, very good. Thank you <laughs> to our correspondent at Appellate Con. <laughs> okay, well, let's jump right in then to our eight Court of Civil Appeals cases that we want to get through today. I think we can probably move through them. Some of them, especially pretty expeditiously. The first one is mine. It is a parental rights termination case in the matter of AH 2021 OK Civ 39, mandate issued on this back on October 21st. It is an appeal of a jury verdict coming out of Cleveland County in a case presided over by Judge Bonner. Here we had a jury that terminated the parental rights of a mother, and she appeals. The basis of the appeal were twofold. One, she argued that the trial court made a mistake when they disallowed her counsel the opportunity to question the panel when it was being seated about the state's burden of proof. 
and also that the trial court gave an erroneous oral supplemental verdict urging instruction to the jury when the jury was deadlocked. So just a little bit about the facts here because they are needed to understand the court's decision. One of the bases that the state moved for termination of parental rights under was that the child had been placed in foster care for a certain amount of time prior to the trial. And I'm I'm not that smart on parental termination cases, but apparently that is part of the test on whether or not the rights of the parents should be terminated based on how long the child has been in foster care prior to the trial. So that was an issue. Was that was one of the key facts and that was one of the basis for the state's position that their parental rights should be terminated. So with that context, two things happen. The jury comes back after three hours of deliberation and says, hey, we're deadlocked. And the trial court then gives the jury the following verdict urging instruction. And I will also say for context that unlike in criminal cases, there are no uniform jury instructions for a deadlocked jury in a civil or juvenile case. So judges are just kind of having to wing it. And there is a statute that says if the court determines that the jurors should be instructed on a matter that is not included in the uniform jury instructions, the court should give an instruction that is simple, brief, impartial, and free from argument. That is the guidance in 12 OS 577.2. So again, jury comes back after three hours, says we're deadlocked, and the judge gives them the following instructions, which I will read verbatim. You all have been going at it a couple of hours. If we need to order dinner for you, we will, but you need to go and have a decision. This is too important. These affect lives, one of which has been in DHS custody for half the person's life, which is a reference to the evidence regarding the amount of time in foster care, which is part of the standard that the jury is supposed to be weighing. The judge goes on, they need to know which way it's going. Mother needs to know which way it's going. So I thank you for your efforts. If we need to order some pizza or something for dinner, it takes about 45 minutes. I would be glad to do so, but you need to return to your deliberations. Thank you, we're in recess. So the Court of Civil Appeals says that was an improper jury deadlocked verdict urging instruction that the instruction was perhaps simple and brief, but was not impartial and conveyed the trial court's feelings about the evidence and acted to focus the jury's attention on one element of the grounds for termination. This was reversible error. They also say that the court's denial of the mother's counsel's attempt to question the panel about the standard that the state had to meet was also an error and reversible. The the best practice would be for the trial court to advise the panel that the state must prove its case for termination by clear and convincing evidence and to define the evidence according to the juvenile jury instruction 2.5. The trial court's denial of mother's counsel's request to provide the explanation of what clear and convincing evidence is deprived her counsel of the opportunity to uncover actual or implied bias and to intelligently exercise peremptory challenges on this critical issue in the case. Now, this is interesting because we had a Another instruction case, just an episode or two back, and that had to do with whether the, if I remember right, the same issue that the appellant was arguing 
that, hey, the failure to let us delve into this issue during voir dire deprived us of the right to uncover, you know, bias, et cetera. And I think the court went the other way on that one. But anyway, we've had a couple of cases recently on questions to the panel. So here we have another one. That's that's the outcome here. Cases reversed and remanded, opinion written by Judge Barnes and Judges Wiseman and Hickson, who was sitting by designation, concur. And it's about all I can tell you about this one because, of course, the juvenile case, the dockets are not publicly accessible because I can't tell you much about the procedural history that led up to this. But that's what the Court of Appeals did. Looks like there probably was not a cert petition filed because it was decided on September 15th and mandate issued on October 21st. So well, indicates to me that nothing was filed on cert. Interesting, though, because those termination cases rarely can... Do you see a reversal? Okay, the next case is mine as well. This is Board of County Commissioners versus the Office of Juvenile Affairs 2021 OK 40. In this case, the Board of County Commissioners of Texas County brought suit against the Oklahoma Office of Juvenile Affairs, taking issue with that body's cutting of funding for a six-bed juvenile detention facility that the Oklahoma Office of Juvenile Affairs operated through the Board of County Commissioners of Texas County. So basically, OJA had a contract with Texas County to operate this six-bed juvenile detention facility out there in Texas County. And in an open meeting, the OJA voted to basically cut the funding for this facility out there in Texas County. The Board of County Commissioners, in an effort to, I guess, save that facility, brings this lawsuit and says that the OJA action was improper and should be overturned. So the OJA files a motion to dismiss and says that the trial court in Texas County has no jurisdiction over this matter and the matter should be dismissed. The trial court initially denies the motion to dismiss and then OJA has a motion pending for a temporary injunction to prevent the budgetary cut from taking effect during pendency of the lawsuit. And at that hearing on the motion to stay and temporary injunction, the OJA re-raises their motion to dismiss and actually puts on a witness to testify about it. Their, their testimony is, I think, relevant both to the motion to stay and the motion to dismiss. The court lets them present that and then says basically on, you know, second thought, I think the motion to dismiss should be granted. And that's what gets us to the Oklahoma Court of Civil Appeals. This is Judge Reddick out in Texas County. And the Court of Civil Appeals looks at two issues then. They look at whether the trial court violated Texas County's due process rights by taking the motion to dismiss up again at the hearing set for the motion for stay and temporary injunction. And then they also look at the underlying issue of jurisdiction and venue related to whether the court in Texas County is the right place to have this dispute. With respect to the due process issue, the Court of Civil Appeals says, you know, due process does not mandate any particular form of procedure. It's a 
determination that is made on a case-by-case basis. In this case, the OJA announced in advance of this hearing on the motion to stay and for injunction of its intent to present a witness regarding jurisdiction. So this wasn't a surprise witness. And also the Board of County Commissioners have been given the opportunity to be heard on the motion to dismiss at the prior hearing, after which the court initially denied the motion to dismiss. So the Court of Civil Appeals says we're not offended by the due process issues here. Uh, We don't think this was a violation of the Board of County Commissioners due process rights for the trial court to hear this matter again at the hearing set for another motion and to allow the witness to testify. It's fine for the trial court to allow the OJA to renew its motion to dismiss in the fashion that it did. So no due process problem, no error there that requires reversal. Moving on then to the issue of jurisdiction, the court says jurisdiction and venue are inextricably intertwined with the merits of the board's claims in this case. And at issue is whether or not the action taken by OJA is one that is even reviewable by the district court. The OJA here, if they were to have taken an individual or taken action in an individual proceeding, then potentially venue would be proper in Texas County. However, the issue here was not an individual proceeding that triggered a proprietary interest of the Board of County Commissioners and would open up judicial review under the Administrative Procedures Act because this wasn't an individual proceeding. Rather, it was an operational decision made by the OJA that was based on statewide changes to budget. So they weren't just singling out the facility in Texas County. And what they, the OJA's action was within the scope of their statutory authority. It was not something subject to the rulemaking requirements of the Administrative Procedures Act. So no jurisdiction out in Texas County. Motion to dismiss was properly granted and affirmed. Now the no cert petition was filed. I'll just also note that the Board of County Commissioners also made claims that the OJA breached the contract by failing to give the board the required 30 days notice that it did not intend to renew the contract with the county and that they violated the Open Meeting Act. And the Court of Civil Appeals said, well, maybe, but that's really not before us in this action. And that if that were to be heard by district court, that venue for that would be in Oklahoma County, not Texas County anyway, because Oklahoma County is the you know the home of the OJA, and those are the kind of claims that you have to bring by statute in the home jurisdiction and venue of the agency, which would be Oklahoma County. Wow, lots of good little nuggets in this opinion. You say so, Jana. <laughs> <laughs> this episode is brought to you by OklahomaForms.com. Take cut and paste to the next level with hundreds of automated forms in multiple practice areas. Draft better documents faster and make your practice more efficient and profitable for only $49 per month. No long-term commitment. Cancel any time. Join hundreds of Oklahoma lawyers that have already discovered the magic of OklahomaForms.com. Go to OklahomaForms.com to sign up for a free seven-day trial. Well, I apologize to all our listeners, but you have to listen to me for three cases in a row. 
The next case is 2021 OK Civ App 41, Andrew versus Depani Sparks. And oh boy. <laughs> yeah, this one comes up out of Oklahoma County, presided over there by Judge Timmons. And this has to do with the application of the statute on prejudgment interest and which version of the statute should be applied based on you know when the claim was brought, when the verdict was entered, et cetera, et cetera. So this uh, underlying suit was a, a medical negligence claim brought on behalf of a minor child. The case has been up and back a couple of times, actually. The Oklahoma Supreme Court had previously overturned trial court's granting of summary judgment in the case. And so it goes back down to the trial court and comes back up after a jury verdict on this issue. So the jury returned a verdict to the parents on behalf of the minor child for $700,000. Parents then filed their application for cost, and that included over $420,000 in prejudgment interest and post-judgment interest. Of course, in 2013, the statute changed on the interest rate to apply to prejudgment interests, and it went from a, a you know a, a pretty healthy prejudgment interest rate to basically zero <laughs> as a part of quote unquote tort reform. So prejudgment interest is pretty negligible now. It's based on I think you know like government bond rates that are almost zero. Mm-hmm. So the difference is pretty significant. The defendant says that the court applied the wrong version of the statute, that the court applied the 2004 version of the statute, which was the statute in effect when this case was filed. But the 2013 version of the statute, which was in effect at the time the verdict was entered, was the correct version of the statute to apply, which would result in prejudgment interest of about 20 grand as opposed to like 400 and something thousand. The trial court sided with the plaintiffs and awarded prejudgment interest based on the 2004 version of the statute. There's a little bit of procedural nuance here on the defendant's action that they took after this order was entered about prejudgment interest. The defendants filed their initial motion more than 10 days, but less than 30 days after the verdict was entered regarding the underlying judgment itself, Uh-oh. they did file the motion for a new trial on the prejudgment interest issue within 10 days of that order being entered. So, of course, the distinction is we've talked about this on in last season a few times. If you file within 10 days of the order, then you have stopped the appeal clock from running. If you file after 10 days, you have not. Am I getting that right, Jana? That is correct. Okay. So then they tried to, they initially filed their petition in error, I believe, covering just the court's action on the motion to vacate. And then they try to amend and file the amended petition in error on the underlying verdict itself. And the court still feels says, sorry, no, mm-hmm. too late. Time, time is up to bring that underlying verdict claim to us because because you you only raised that after the verdict had been in for 10 days. And by the time you filed the amended petition in error, your appellate time had run on that issue. So mm-hmm. we're not going to deal with that. So that's just another, I guess, plug for paying attention to the rules on that and understanding what you're doing. If you, if you go to file a motion to vacate or as they're, as they're sometimes, I think, as we've agreed, kind of erroneously termed their, their motions for new trial, but whether, whether you file it within 10 days or 
between 10 and 30 days is important, an important distinction for purposes of your appellate clock. So getting back to, you know, the merits here, the Court of Appeals says that with respect to calculation of prejudgment interest, that Oklahoma law has consistently recognized that the application of the prejudgment interest statutes to cases filed before the statute was adopted, which is what the defense are asking the court to do here, is constitutional as long as the effective date of the statute predates the acceptance of the verdict. So here we had a case filed under the old prejudgment interest statute, but the verdict isn't entered until after the effective date of the new prejudgment interest statute. And the court says the applicable prejudgment interest statute is the one that's in effect at the time the verdict is entered, regardless of when the case was filed and what the law was then. So in 2008, when this verdict was accepted, the 2013 version of the statute was what was in effect. And that's the correct statute version to use and the correct interest rate, which is effectively zero. So trial court applied the wrong interest rate, send it back and say calculate it based on the amount of prejudgment interest and post-judgment interest in accordance with the 2013 version of the statute, which is Title 12 OS 727.1. Judge Hickson is the author here, and Vice Chief Judge Fisher and Judge Rapp concur in their results. The petition for cert is denied 7 to 2. All right. Somebody gets to hear you. Okay, now now I'm now I'm up here. Okay. This is 2021 okay Civ App 42 Osborne versus Steiger. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because I think this is more of a procedural case. And I'm going to defer to Judge Fisher's discussion on the pod here recently with us that this was probably published because it has some procedural impacts that could be used widespread in civil practice. So it deals with third-party pleading under 12 OS section 2014 is really, you know, what this opinion is about. And I'm not going to get into the merits of the underlying case. So this comes out of Oklahoma County, Judge Stallings, and it's an appeal from an order of dismissal that's been assigned back to the Court of Civil Appeals. The underlying case involves a stock purchase agreement between the parties. And after three years of litigation in a one-day non-jury trial, the district court entered a journal entry in which it explained that it had ordered the defendant, Deborah Steiger, following the non-jury trial to convert her counterclaim against the plaintiff and her cross-claim against the other defendant to, and I'm putting it in quotes, third-party practice. So the defendant, Ms. Steiger, and her counsel declined to do that. And the district court then says that they failed to follow my instructions after the non-jury trial and file a timely third-party petition with summons against the plaintiff. And so the district court dismisses the counterclaim and cross-claim with prejudice. So that dismissal order is what is up on appeal. And so technically, it's because it's a dismissal, it's a de novo standard of review. And in this opinion, Judge Barnes writes, writes the opinion and says that the district court's decision here made after trial on the merits 
and three years after the pleading stage is inconsistent with the general philosophy of our pleading code, which is that pleading should be should give fair notice of the claim and be subject to liberal amendment. They should also be liberally construed so as to do substantial justice and decisions should be made on the merits rather than on technical niceties. So the Court of Civil Appeals says that's not what happened here. And we think that there needs to be a decision on the merits. And so they reverse the case and they send it back and they give directions to the lower court to make a decision on the merits of the case, which she'd already, the court had already had the bench trial on. So reversed and remanded with directions. Judge Wiseman and Judge Blackwell concur, sign off on this opinion, and no cert petition was filed. Okay. Well, now we move into what case had the most interest when it went out in case alerts. So <laughs> it's interesting. You know, we I can we send out these case alerts where we summarize these cases in a brief email to subscribers to the case alerts. And of course, you know, on the back end, I can see which cases are getting clicked on the most. So in other words, we're watching you. We know if yes. you're clicking on our case alert emails or not. That's so right. <laughs> I just find it interesting because it, you know, to see which cases most people click through to read more about versus others. And I guess I was a little surprised that this one had as much interest as it did, but uh, but it definitely was the most popular by a long shot of the <laughs> cases that were contained in the case alert in which it appeared. So this is this, quite the setup. Don't yeah, I'm sorry. Maybe I'm maybe you know pumping this one up a little bit much, but this is 2021 OK Civ App 43 Paycom Payroll versus Buddhising. I'm probably butchering that, but 2021 OK Civ App 43. The underlying case comes up from District Court of Oklahoma County and Judge Strong. And this is an interlocutory appeal of a, an order entered on some costs related to a discovery dispute. So essentially a sanctions order directing one of the parties to pay some money. The case itself had to do with allegations that the defendant violated his employment agreement with Paycom. And the case was filed, I believe, back in 2017. Nothing had happened in the docket until this discovery dispute bubbles up in March of 2020. And the discovery dispute was that the plaintiff noticed the defendant, who is a resident of New York City, for a deposition in Oklahoma City. And the notice directed the defendant to appear for said deposition in Oklahoma City about 18 days after the notice was served. And apparently there was no discussion between counsel about trying to set a deposition by agreement. Just plaintiff sends a notice to this defendant in New York City saying, we want you in Oklahoma City in 18 days to be deposed. The other thing that's going on here, of course, March 2020 is kind of the early stages of the coronavirus pandemic. And as many will remember, New York City was one of the kind of the hotbeds early on. So you had that. You also had a defendant who you know, is employed in New York City, who is being asked to travel on relatively short notice. So that's, you know, everybody that's bought plane tickets knows that generally if you want to buy a plane ticket 18 days before travel, they're going to be more expensive than if you plan more in advance. 
Also, this defendant was apparently getting married. I don't think exactly around the date of the deposition, but maybe shortly thereafter. And so that brought up concerns about, you know, being gone from work for his nuptials, as well as having to take off work to come to Oklahoma City to this deposition. So these are all the things that the defendant brings up as to why this is not reasonable to notice the defendant to show up in 18 days in Oklahoma City for a deposition. However, all these things are not brought up to plaintiff's counsel until the day before <laughs> the day of the notice deposition. So defendant gets this, apparently has all these problems with showing up on the notice date, but waits till the day before the notice date for the defendant's attorney, who's also an Oklahoma City lawyer, to contact the other Oklahoma City lawyer to say, you know, we're not we're not going to show up. And here's all these reasons why. And if I have to, I'm going to file a motion for protective order to protect my client from having to show up tomorrow in Oklahoma City for this deposition. The attorneys, you know, send a series of emails. I won't characterize them. I had a word in mind, but they send a series of emails back and forth about this scheduling brouhaha uh, that ultimately results in the defendant filing said motion for protective order under 12 OS 3226C, which is where you will find the procedure to follow if you want to protect your client from what you believe is abusive discovery practice. It takes a couple months for the hearing to take place because of COVID, et cetera. But a couple months later, the court holds the hearing on the motion for protective order, denies the motion and orders the defendant to appear, I believe, prior to someday in August for in-person deposition in Oklahoma City. Then, uh, oh, and also orders that all reasonable fees and costs incurred by the plaintiff in responding to the defendant's motion are to be paid by the defendant. Deposition is taken some couple months later, and after the deposition, the plaintiff files a motion requesting fees of $7,290 for responding to the motion for protective order that the court had previously ruled on in the plaintiff's favor and awarded them reasonable fees and costs. This all comes from 3226 and 3227 in Title 12. In Title 12, 3227, there are some provisions that, that deal with awarding expenses if a party files a motion for protective order in a discovery dispute. Essentially, whoever wins that motion is entitled to recover expenses. And in this case, of course, the motion was denied. So the plaintiff prevailed. And the statute says, if the motion is denied, the court shall, after opportunity for hearing, require the moving party, so that'd be the defendant in this case, or the attorney advising the motion or both, to pay the party or deponent who opposed the motion the reasonable expenses incurred in opposing the motion. So that would be the plaintiff who opposed the motion and the motion was denied. So those reasonable expenses should include attorney's fees. And here's the important language for purposes of this decision. Unless the court finds that the making of the motion was substantially justified or that other circumstances made an award of the expenses unjust. And in this case, the Court of Civil Appeals 
says that under the circumstances, which is essentially mutually bad behavior by both sides, that an award of expenses to the plaintiff would be unjust. So reverses the trial court and says that the lack of civility and professional courtesy exhibited by both sides made an award of expenses unjust and to award fees under these circumstances constituted a clear abuse of the trial court's discretion. So the quoting from the opinion, we discern an untoward lack of civility by both lawyers and trying to schedule, reschedule defendant's deposition. For example, plaintiff's counsel did not attempt to reach a mutually agreeable date, time, and place with defense counsel and scheduled defense counsel's deposition. Initially, extending such professional courtesy would have avoided most, if not all, of this unpleasantness. So criticizing the plaintiff's counsel for not trying to set a date for the deposition by agreement and before just noticing it up. And then the defense counsel's lack of professional courtesy compounded the error by failing to notify plaintiff's counsel of his client's unavailability until the day before the deposition. So there you have it. And also the court said, look, this case has been on file since 2017 and nothing has happened. What was the big impetus to have to depose this guy in 18 days in March of 2020? It's not clear why, you know, that, that some agreement couldn't have been reached. There didn't seem to be any urgency. None had been exhibited for two for three years prior. So why now? And still the case does not appear to have proceeded past discovery. <laughs> uh, no cert petition filed in this case, probably because both lawyers were anxious for this one to just go away and mm-hmm. didn't necessarily want any more attention on the Court of Civil Appeals published opinion. So you probably- wonder too if perhaps the fact that this all happened at the beginning of COVID in March of 2020 if perhaps that went into any thoughts about fees being unjust. Could be. I think we have a recent court, uh, Oklahoma Supreme Court opinion dealing with scheduling and COVID that mm-hmm. we have to wait till the next episode to hear about. But Stay tuned. Stay tuned. <laughs> All right. Okay. Back, back to you. Next up, Benningfield versus Fisher-Columbo, 2021 OK Civ App 44. This is an appeal coming up from a jury trial in Tulsa County. And the underlying facts of this case are that in May of 2015, the defendant, Fisher Colombo, rear-ended the plaintiff's vehicle, which was stopped at a red light. Despite this rear-end collision, the plaintiff did not seek medical treatment for approximately five months after the accident. At that point, the plaintiff then obtained chiropractic treatment and then orthopedic treatment for her left shoulder. And then finally, three years after the accident, had surgery on her left shoulder. A negligence case is filed by the plaintiff seeking damages for the May 2015 car accident. The defendant here admitted fault, but challenged the causation of the plaintiff's shoulder injuries. And so the case goes to a jury trial and the plaintiff, after putting her case on, moves for a directed verdict on the causation issue and the trial judge denies that. The jury then at the end of the case comes back and returns a verdict for the defendant. So this comes up 
on review of the jury's verdict and also on the trial court's denial of the motion for directed verdict. So that issue, the denial of a motion for directed verdict, the court says is reviewed de novo. And then the trial court's ruling to admit or exclude evidence is reviewed for clear abuse of discretion. So this is an opinion from Judge Prince and this case is affirmed. And with regard to the causation issue on whether this accident actually caused the plaintiff's injuries, the court says that the testimony by the defendant's medical expert did not require the trial court here to direct a verdict on the issue of causation because that testimony was solely based upon subjective evidence and because there was other evidence that contradicted the appellant's position with regard to causation, including that the plaintiff had tarried, 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 T-A-R-R-I-E-D, interesting word, that the appellant had not received medical treatment for approximately five months after this accident and that three years had elapsed between the date of the accident and the actual shoulder surgery. And there was also evidence presented at trial that the plaintiff, who her husband's primary caretaker, and he was disabled, and so she regularly lifted him in and out of a wheelchair. And so there was plenty of evidence, Judge Prince says, to, to support the trial judge's denial of the directed verdict and allow that to go to the jury. With regard to the evidentiary issue that was up on appeal The court says no abuse of discretion by the trial court in allowing the defendant's medical expert to testify about medical evidence that was unavailable to him at the time he conducted his IME, so his examination of the plaintiffs. It was was okay for him to later review other additional evidence that had come in. So the verdict is affirmed. Presiding Judge Gorey and Judge Mitchell concur. Cert petition was filed, but it was denied 8-0. Okay. Well, I don't know if they tarried much before making that decision <laughs> or not, but that would be to stay longer than intended or delay. Okay. okay. To tarry to and fro. <laughs> That's a good, it's a good word. I like it. I like it. Yeah. It's always fun when they, when they work uh, colorful language into the, mm-hmm. so, okay. This is my last case for today. And it is Feeler versus City of Tulsa, 2021 OK Civ at 45, a Workers' Compensation Commission appeal that I can, I think, cover in record time. <laughs> so as we all know, workers' compensation was substantially reworked by the legislature a few years back. So you have a prior Workers' Compensation Act or the WCA, and then a move to an administrative type system the Administrative Workers' Compensation Act, the AWCA. In workers' compensation, there is a thing called permanent partial disability, which is measured in days or weeks. And under the old rules, under the WCA, workers were allowed a maximum of 520 weeks of permanent partial disability, or PPD. Under the new AWCA, that has been reduced to 350 weeks of PPD. Here we have an unfortunate fellow who apparently has a real problem with getting injured at work because he had prior injuries that were adjudicated under the WCA and had been awarded 310.85 weeks of PPD under that act. Then he is 
injured again at work after the passage of the AWCA. And now we have a 350-week limit. And the administrative law judge and the corporation, or I'm sorry, the Workers' Compensation Commission say, well, you got a maximum of 350 available and you've already used 310.85. And so you get 300 or you got 39.15 weeks of PPD left. The injured worker doesn't like this and says, this is not fair. Why should my PPD awarded under the old rules carry over? And I should have either either the old 520-week rule should apply or I should get to reset my PPD and I have 350 available. No, that's not uh, the way this one turns. Um, the uh, Court of Civil Appeals says it's settled law that whatever the workers' compensation law is in effect at the time of the injury controls both the award of benefits and the appellate standard of review where workers' compensation is concerned. You had no vested right in additional PPD until you were injured in 2017. And at that time, your rights were fixed under the new rules. You already used 310.85 of your 350-week limit. You had no vested right to 520 weeks under the old rules, which weren't in effect when you got injured this time around. So the worker doesn't get what he wants. The administrative law judge and the Workers' Compensation Commission are affirmed in an opinion written by Chief Judge Swinton and joined by presiding Judge Pemberton, who uh, this will probably be one of the, if not the last opinion we see his name on, as he has discussed in a prior episode, resigned for other employment. Judge Bell dissented, and Judge Pemberton, he specially concurred. But there is no uh, separate writing from Judge Bell and his dissent. And this is a case where we had a split decision that was published. And I had made some comment that in a prior episode that that was unusual. And Judge Fisher, when he was on the pod, said he didn't think it was unusual. And he's right, of course. May have been unusual in the last year, but here's another one. So, Was there a cert petition filed? Well, yes. Thanks for asking. There was. <laughs> and it was denied 8 Interesting. Okay. So if you're a workers' <laughs> compensation follower out there, now you know. Any prior injury under the prior act, any awards appear to carry forward and apply to maximums under the new act. Okay. There you have it. All right. Be Last careful one. out there at work, everybody. Be careful out there at work. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Uh, Workplace injuries at the pod are not covered by workers' comp, just so we're clear. So (laughs) we don't have workers' comp. (laughs) Or do we have? I have no comment, but, you know, that's, I I, I accept your waiver in the event it never is. Nor do we have sick leave at the pod, I guess, right? (laughs) (laughs) You don't get paid for it. Absence without leave, we have (laughs) Okay, last one for today, 2021 OK Civ App 46, Four Point Energy versus BCE Mach 2. So this is an oil and gas case. So anybody out there listening who is an oil and gas practitioner, this would be one that you want to go take a closer look at because I will certainly butcher it, but I'll do my best. 
This comes to the Court of Civil Appeals out of the District Court of Custer County, Judge Whedon. And this is an appeal from a certified interlocutory order under, you guessed it, 12 OS section 994A. And it's Nobody guessed to- that. Nobody <laughs> And it's assigned to the Court of Civil Appeals, Division One. Underlying facts are that here, BCE Mock 2 purchased all of InterVest interest in a number of properties, including some properties that were subject to Oklahoma Corporation Commission orders naming InterVest as the operator of certain wells. So BCE Mach 2 is approved as a bonded operator of the pooled wells after they take over these properties and they begin operating the pooled wells. Four Point Energy files suit in Custer County seeking a declaration that under the applicable joint operating agreement that four-point energy rather than BCE Mach 2 is the rightful operator of the wells at issue. They also ask for an order enjoining BCE Mach 2 from conducting operations or interfering with four-point energy's operations because four-point energy argues that it's the rightful successor to InterVest on these wells. Um, And they also ask for a monetary award for damages arising from the alleged breach of the contract, the JOA, for failure to turn over the operatorship to Four Point Energy. So BCE Mach 2 seeks dismissal of the claims, and the trial court grants that motion to dismiss and dismisses the, the request for the declaratory judgment and also dismisses requests for injunctive relief on the pooled properties for lack of subject matter jurisdiction. Also dismisses the breach of contract action on the pooled properties for the same reason. The court does not dismiss the claims relating to the non-pooled properties and the order certified for interlocutory review. And so it goes up to the Court of Civil Appeals. And this is also another opinion from Judge Prince. And so the court affirms in part and reverses in part. And with regard to the declaratory relief and injunctive relief, the court says, yes, the trial judge was correct that the Subject matter jurisdiction lies exclusively at the Oklahoma Corporation Commission to determine who the operator is for this well, these wells, even though there are provisions in the JOA that are at issue here. So the Court of Civil Appeals agrees that the district court lacks subject matter jurisdiction to declare Four Point Energy the operator of the wells. With regard to the breach of contract claim, this is the part that is reversed. The Court of Civil Appeals says, look, there's no need to wait here for the resolution of the commission proceedings regarding the designation of the successor operator, because regardless of who the commission designates, you can separate out this breach of contract action because regardless of who they ultimately designate, you can make your claim, Four Point Energy can still make its claim against the appellee for any damages it thinks occurred because of the breach of of the JOA. So they send that part back and say the court does have subject matter jurisdiction now over the breach of contract claim. 
Presiding Judge Gorey and Judge Mitchell concur. No cert petition filed here. What I'd like to note about this opinion, this case, if you look on the docket, was assigned to the Court of Civil Appeals on September the 22nd, 2021. This decision was issued 30 days later on October the 22nd, 2021. 30 days this opinion came out. Wow. So I don't, you know, I just want to point that out that uh, (laughs) this was turned around very quickly. So interesting. That was my little tidbit for this opinion. So, okay. Well, with that, does that bring us to an end of our update from the Court of Civil Appeals? And we've covered every published opinion of the Court of Civil Appeals that has hit the street at the time we're recording this. Yep. You're up to date here. All right. Well, thanks everybody for listening and hope you enjoyed our reports at the start of the pod from the OBA annual meeting. And from Appellate Nerd Con <laughs> and the eight Court of Civil Appeals opinions. So you may now return to your regularly scheduled life. <laughs> That's the end. <laughs> we'll be back here in a couple of weeks to finish out the year for the Oklahoma Supreme Court opinions. So stay tuned for that one. Okay. Bye-bye. Hi, everyone. This is Gabe again. To find show notes, contact the host and more, go to oklahomaappeals.com. Also, if you're interested in the things we cover on this show, then you should follow us on Twitter, at Oklahoma Appeals, where we post court news and other items of interest for Oklahoma lawyers. Okay, Jana and I will be back with a new episode every other Wednesday. So until next time, bye-bye. This episode is brought to you by oklahomaforms.com. Take cut and paste to the next level with hundreds of automated forms in multiple practice areas. Draft better documents faster and make your practice more efficient and profitable for only $49 per month. No long-term commitment. Cancel any time. Join hundreds of Oklahoma lawyers that have already discovered the magic of OklahomaForms.com. Go to OklahomaForms.com to sign up for a free 7-day trial.